This is the Property Solopreneur Podcast, and I'm Rachel Troughton. I'll be talking about everything you need to create wealth by building your portfolio in a sustainable and profitable way. I'll be sharing the realities of a property investing business. I'll talk bricks and mortar, buy-to-let, HMOs, flipping and planning game, as that's what we all enjoy doing. But I'll also share how to use good systems, processes, and find the right professionals to work with. In fact, everything that will enable you to become a successful property solopreneur. Welcome to this week's episode of the Property Solopreneur. And this week, I'm in conversation with Suzanne Smith about her investment in Kent. Now, some of you may know her through her Instagram account, My Victorian Houses. If you haven't seen it, go and have a look because it will give you a clue as to the type of houses she likes to invest in. Property investing is a very broad church, although we tend to forget that because it's all too easy to buy into the idea that it's all about the numbers, isn't it? It's all about return on investment with no money in, creating millions of pounds worth of mortgage debt. And if you don't have all that, then you're just not trying. Well, I think that's just the noisy story, the one we hear about most and see on social media and at property meets. I think Suzanne is one of the quiet majority. She got into property because she became an accidental landlord and she'd retired from her previous profession as a lawyer. She enjoys being a hands-on landlord, something we're always told you have to stop doing if you want to be serious about property. She's serious about property, but she enjoys looking after her own properties. She's not interested in scaling up to a huge portfolio because to her, it's a diversification of wealth creation. You know, it's an attitude and approach to property investing that I think should not be overlooked. It's absolutely vital to have a balanced portfolio across all investment vehicles. And don't forget that just under half of all landlords only own one property. I know it's an amazing fact that, isn't it? You wouldn't know it by speaking to people at property meetings. You know, if you've got less than five, you're not seen to be doing anything. But the reason they own and manage properties, yes, that's just as valid as someone who's created a huge and vast portfolio. Now, I think you may find some of the things that Suzanne says quite surprising. And if you do, just ask yourself why, because there are lots of nuggets in this for the seasoned investor. Because if you're new to property, you see property investing in a completely different way to someone who's been at it for a while. It's a blank canvas and you ask questions that everybody just takes for granted. And sometimes they're very obvious questions, but the answer that a newbie receives may not be the same as the one that a long-term investor got when they started out and still takes as absolutely Bible truth. Being an investor, it's all about keeping up to date. So, for instance, listen out for her discussion about the 2019 Fitness for Human Habitation Act. Not heard about it? Well, then have a listen. You really need to know this stuff. And if you're not by a pencil and paper, don't worry about it, because I've popped all her details in the show notes. Suzanne, thank you so much for coming and talking to me this morning about your property investment. How did you actually get started and why? 
That's a good question. So like almost half of landlords, I came to it via the accidental landlord route. I had a flat that I owned that I'd been living in during the week when I was working in Cambridge. I'd had it for seven years. And uh, I decided that instead of selling it, I'd try and let it out because I thought it would be good to have some income. That turned out not to be a brilliant income because it was low yield, but it got me thinking about property and getting an income and how it would be an awful lot easier if I bought some houses closer to where I live at home that I could manage easily myself. And so I bought my first buy-to-let in September 2019, three years ago, almost exactly. Gosh, just before COVID, I mean, what a time to start. I know, I know. It was fine, actually. I didn't have any problems during COVID. And I bought my second house. I put the offer in on the second house during COVID. And that turned out to be a really good buy with uh, hindsight because the market jumped up soon afterwards. So since then, I've bought three Victorian houses near where I live. And I've sold the flat in Cambridge because it was too much hassle to manage at a distance. But also the long-term capital growth was low, as I'd seen myself. I barely made my money back on it after seven years. And also the yield was really low, even before you take into account the extortionate service charge. So for me, it was no more flats, <laughs> no more leaseholds. Give me uh, Victorian houses near where I live and a good location. They're easy to let. And that will be a nice sustainable income for me into my old age. <laughs> Absolutely. And that really does encapsulate the fact that I'm always saying everyone's got to have a different niche in property. There is no blanket, yes or no. You've gone for Victorian houses. That's what you're known for. Partly because you lived in one for yourself when you were first in London. So the Victorian house concept wasn't frightening to you. Some people find them incredibly difficult to work with. Why do you love Victorian houses? Oh, we bought our first Victorian house in Balham when it wasn't the expensive area it is now in 1994. There wasn't a right angle in the house and it was very quirky and Funny enough, you know, we, we sold it four years later when um, I had twins and uh, we made quite a lot of money on it without actually doing anything on it. So we bought our first Victorian house in 1994, just at the end of the period of negative equity. And it was a three bedroom Victorian house in Balham, uh, quite near the tube station. And we could see the area gentrifying, people doing it up, skips outside. And we saw ourselves that Victorian houses are really nice places to live because they've got high ceilings. They're very, very adaptable. They're all different configurations. And then we sold that when I had twins, when we had twins, and we bought a bigger Victorian house quite nearby. And we did the whole side return extension, the loft conversion reconfiguration. And we really loved that house and were very happy living there. And then we decided to move to Kent, the big move out to the country, uh, which is what we did. And so I have really fond memories of the time that we spent living in Victorian houses in London. And now these houses remain really, really popular. And the whole area has improved. And in some ways, I wish I had held on to them because they're worth but an that, absolute... That, 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 but honestly, Suzanne, that, that, is, that is what 
every single property investor says, oh, I wish I'd held on to I that. Know. I mean, I would be really, really rich if everybody said that to me. But yeah. what it did give you was this understanding of what it's like to live in a Victorian house and the fact that they are family homes, aren't they? And you like yes. letting out family homes. And I love the fact, because I know you, you, as you said, you invest in Victorian houses. The area in Maystone that you actually invest in is a sort of mini Victorian area, isn't it? They're all named after things to do with Victoriana. I thought that was hilarious when you told me that. Yes. Um, talk about following it through. <laughs> I found the area by accident because Maidstone has lots of big roads going in and out of it. And you don't really notice these hidden enclaves of Victorian houses. And the area is not a, what do you call it, a heritage site. It's not protected, but I think actually it should be. But there are all these lovely Victorian houses. A lot of them are in a state of decrepitude, but there are a lot of skips outside them and people are busily doing them up because they're so convenient. They're not in, on through roads. They're really close to the station. They're walking distance to four grammar schools and they're very, very popular places with families. And I stumbled upon it accidentally when I was stuck in a traffic jam trying to find a way through and there are no through roads. So, and I thought to myself, goodness me, this is a lovely area. It reminds me of Balham in the 1990s, a lovely place for families to live. And very soon afterwards, I bought my first one, found it on Rightmove. Well, that's the point, isn't it? Everyone always says it's impossible to find a decent place to buy in the south of England that you can turn into a profitable rental. And you've proved the point that you can. You know, we spoke earlier in the week as well. And one of the things that I took away was the fact that you, not only is the house important, it's what kind of experience will your renters get? Because you want long-term renters. And one of the things you said to me was, there is a prison in Maidstone, which I have to say had escaped my knowledge. But you make sure that you can't see it from where you, you let out your houses because that is something that will put people off. And that's something many people overlook. It's what won't tenants actually want as much as what will they want. What do you want your tenant? You, you talk about the, the renter's experience. What is that to you? Well, I, I want them to feel that it's a nice road, that it's not grotty. I don't mind if it's up and coming, that's fine. But you don't want it to be a busy road with a lot of traffic or having a view that's not very nice. And Maystone Prison in Maystone is really overpowering. And it's actually very close to the roads where I invest. But in the roads that where I invest, you can't see it. So... <laughs> Yes. Well, you, I think these things do have to be taken into consideration. One of my very early houses is right opposite the main police station in Stoke-on-Trent. I thought, hurrah, that's going to be lovely and safe. Very difficult to let out. Tenants are terrified for some bizarre reason that the police are sitting at their office windows with their binos, watching them go in and out. <laughs> and it's always let, the last of all, and it takes the longest to let. So, Actually, understanding what will put off a tenant is just as important as knowing what they really want. And I think that's something that so many people completely miss. But you are a hands-on landlord too, aren't you? Yes, very hands-on. And I've always managed my own properties, even the flat in, in Cambridge, because I just didn't want to be giving away 14.4% of my gross rent to somebody who effectively is a call centre and who arranges the trades to go there. And there's a markup. I couldn't see, for me, I couldn't see any added value. 
I'm sure there are good letting agents and managing agents out there, but it's just not my experience of them. The margins in landlording are so low anyway, and I didn't want to be giving more margin away to somebody else to manage it. So yes, I am very hands-on. I think it's important for me to oversee the refurbishment to go there because there are there are lots and lots of decisions that are being made every day. Like, where does this light switch go? It sounds really trivial, but actually could, that can really impact the renter experience. And I did some of the work myself, but it did employ tradespeople. And I, in my last one, I did a lot of work on the garden because it was like a wasteland before it was horrible. And I spent probably way too much money putting in a nice patio and grass, proper turf and a nice raised border with railway sleepers, really low maintenance. And every single person who came to see the house said, wow, it looks like it doesn't look like rental accommodation. It's like another room. It really sold the house. And I think after COVID, we all appreciate gardens so much more. And I want the people that live there to like living there, to be able to go and sit outside and have a glass of wine of an evening in the garden in the sun. And just because you rent a property doesn't mean that you, you shouldn't be able to do that. It, well, gardens, yeah, gardens are very much an important part of living. And I think COVID did bring that home to many people who had not really given it much thought. But also the fact that it has to be easy to maintain yeah. because, you know, no tenant is going to spend forever uh, outside and nor as a landlord do you want to be going in after every single tenancy and cutting acres of, of hedging and lots of lawn. It's got to be simple and easy and pleasant, hasn't it? And one of the... Yeah, yeah. and I left them a Left them a lawnmower? Sorry, I left them a lawnmower. Oh, right. Yeah, I just bought a little FIMO. It was £60. And so there's no excuse. And it's not a very big patch of grass, but it's nice. And it's actually good for the environment as well, not to have everything paved over or astroturf. And the border at the back is really, really low maintenance. And so for those of us who are now thinking, ah, she left them a flymo, is it on your list of things that you own in the premises or does it get transferred to them? And if it's yours, are you pat testing it every year? Yeah, absolutely. So it's on the inventory. And yes, I will pat test it every year. It was brand new when they got it. And uh, and so and the extension lead as well, because it wouldn't reach the, the lead from the lawnmower, wouldn't reach the house. So I bought them a brand new extension lead and left that. And that's on the inventory as well. Just makes life easier for them. Yes, but it is one of those things. You, if you put something into a rental property, you have to think the whole thing through. It is a case of going, right, OK, this is mine. I've got to make sure it applies by the rules. How do they use it? And thinking the whole thing through. Do you think you found that easy to do because you've got this long history of a career in law? Absolutely. Or is it just yet? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. <laughs> it makes you think about things. No, I, I read everything. I've spent hours and hours reading about landlord responsibilities. And yes, absolutely. I've spent a lot of time researching all of the landlord responsibilities and I'm interested in it. And I think that's also led me to want to write about it and to do educational content on Instagram about trying to make some of the complicated things easy for other people who want to become landlords or who are landlords, but who aren't lawyers. Because there's an awful lot of rubbish spoken about the law and things that you can and can't do. And so I'm just wanting to help people by explaining it in everyday language that is practical and said from the point of view of a landlord, of somebody who's actually doing it. 
because so often the law's quite dry and you need somebody to say, and what this means is, and that's what I've been trying to do. Yes, which is whereas many people just go, oh, there must be a law about it. I can't do it. Because many people who come into um, property, they just get overwhelmed almost by the fact that you've got to find the right place, find the right way of doing it up. And then you've got all these rules and regulations. And then they keep changing the goalposts as well. Yeah. Whereas I get the feeling with you, you just go, oh, it's another law, right? What does it mean for me? What do I have to do to make sure that my tenants are safe? Is that what you do? Yeah. Exactly. And now I'll also write about it. So the new law came in a couple of years ago, which not that many people know about. It's called the Homes Fit for Human Habitation Act 2019. And in that, it says that you need to provide adequate facilities for cooking. And I put that in my, on one of my Instagram reels in the caption saying that you need to provide a cooker and a hob. And I had people saying, really? No, you don't. I've done the NRLA training. They don't mention that. And I gave them a link to the law where it says adequate cooking facilities. And on my blog, blog post on it, I discuss, well, what is adequate cooking facilities? And in a bed set, maybe what in the old days we called a baby belling might be okay, but a baby belling wouldn't be, as long as it's not a fire risk, a baby belling would not be okay for a family. You would need to have a full-size hob and oven for that, but you wouldn't need a not microwave. So all of these kinds, there are all these laws that appear and people don't really understand them. And for instance, the decent home standard is another new one that's coming in. And it's something that's applied to social housing up until now. And there are plans to introduce it to the private rented sector. And I'm sure that people are going to be confused about that because often the words in the legislation are very vague, you know, like adequate cooking facilities, but without any guidance saying yes. what adequate <laughs> cooking yeah. facilities is. What does that mean? It's just. And of course, that does also differ. Adequate does differ depending on what part of society you come from. So some of my friends, they couldn't possibly survive without an argor. <laughs> But that wouldn't be acceptable in a small terrace in Stoke-on-Trent. So it, adequate is also about who you're renting to and the type of property you're dealing with as well. And so that creates even more complications, doesn't it? Absolutely. So it really is about practicality. Yes. And, and I think you're so right about the fact is that the law can be misinterpreted some ways. I remember when GDPR came in and I was attending a council landlord briefing and it was very new and, and the council worker stood up at the front of the room and said, you know, this is what we've all got to do, blah, blah, blah. Questions. And a chap put up his hand and he said, well, I don't have a computer. I keep all my customer records, my tenants records in a cardboard box in my front room. And she went, oh, this rule doesn't apply well, to you. It's absolutely rubbish because there's a data protection um, act. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> but it, it was a classic uh, slight misinterpreting of what it was because everyone was talking about computers and it had to be computer records and all the rest of it and then missed the bigger point which is it was the tenants records that were being protected not the fact that it was on a computer and that's what I think so many people do when they read a new act they just go oh all too difficult can't think through it I'll just go it doesn't apply to me or over the, go over the top and leave being a landlord a lot of these landlord acts are fairly straightforward to understand and you haven't had any difficulty in implementing or being worried about them, have you? I mean, the EPC is a case in point. 
So in the blog post, I did a blog post on landlord repairing obligations because they are difficult to figure out because they're in all different bits of legislation, even going back to a case in the 1950s with the infamous Lord Denning. And it's very difficult because there's not one bit of paper that you can read to say, this is what I have to do if something goes wrong. This is what the tenant does. And so they're piecemeal and they've been built one on top of the other. So in my blog post, what I did is I went through and I explained it, but then encapsulated it in a sentence or two saying, you need to provide somewhere that is decent to live, that is fit for human to, um, habitation. It's a false economy to nickel and dime or penny pinch over repairs. If something breaks, fix it. Yes. And so it's not rocket science. And people say, I'm not going to service the boiler because I don't have to. I just need a, a gas safety certificate. And it costs £20 to get on top of the gas safety certificate to get the boiler done. I think, why on earth would you not service the boiler? It makes the boiler last longer. It's safer for the tenants. It's arguably in the wider obligations of a house fit for human habitation. Yet landlords will say, oh, I'm not going to change the lock because it's not my obligation, it's the tenant's obligation, or it's good enough even though they have to give it a wiggle. I just don't understand why people don't spend these relatively small amounts of money to improve the condition of the houses that people live in. But I think part of that is the fact that people very much, if they're, if they're trying to build a, you know, a future and financial freedom and all these other words that are, are put around, they lose sight of the fact that there are three people in this sort of property marriage. You know, there's a building, there's a tenant and there's the landlord. And they just see the property and the landlord and the amount of money they're going to earn. And perhaps they are overextended and there isn't actually a lot of money for them to float about with. And sometimes it would be better to have a smaller portfolio, but a better funded one so that you can actually create a better home and a better quality letting experience for your tenants. I think some people literally run out of money. You may not have met them yet, but I meet them all the time when I'm around the country uh, talking to people. And I think that's something that people have got to, when they come into property, realise that it's not just about making the most amount of money out of every single month's transaction. There are obligations and they're going to cost you money. And you can't just go to your tenant, sorry, can't have a new boiler this month because I haven't got enough in the kitty. That doesn't work, does it? And somehow I think more people have got to understand this. Now, you've been to a few property meetings and you, like me, feel that this sort of thing isn't brought out enough. It, it's a three-way, or it is a marriage almost. Would you like to see more landlords have to take some form of instruction before they're allowed to let out? Would that solve a problem? I don't know about instruction. I think in business and in life, the thing that I find the most helpful is the golden rule is to treat other people how you would want to be treated yourself. And that runs right through everything that I do. It includes the way I manage my properties. I cannot believe that a landlord can't afford an extra £20 to service a boiler at the same time they're doing the gas safety certificate. I bought a house recently and the boiler had never been serviced. And that I find that absolutely extraordinary. And I replaced the boiler. It was completely rusted and it had passed a gas safety certificate because a gas safety certificate is doing something else. And I think it's also about being a good steward. If you have a car and you don't get it serviced, it's not going to last very long. It's the same as a house. If you don't look after things, if you don't paint them, if you don't do the repairs, if you don't 
get the boiler serviced is not going to last very long. So it's a false economy to penny pinch. And I think that some people, they invest in property, they go for the highest yield, they might not be earning a huge amount of money in terms of pounds. And it's at the other end of the country. And they have to instruct managing agents who take a large amount of the gross rent. I think it would be far better for people to buy a house closer to where they live, have a smaller yield and manage it themselves and have fewer properties. Because in the amount that you would spend in a property that you're outsourcing the management, that would cover an awful lot of bills. And you'd get to know the property better and what the problems are and head off things. Because often managers they will sort out the particular problem and the symptoms, but they won't look at what's lying beneath it. And I think when you're a landlord and you care about the property, you'll say, okay, these lights in the bathroom keep going out. That's really strange. And then realizing, ah, there's a leak, a roof leak, which is something that happened to me. Whereas if I just had a manager doing it, they wouldn't have been thinking the why. They would have been thinking the let's get this fixed. Yes, yeah, so I think it just depends. I mean, I don't manage tenants. Tenants hate me, um, so I, and I don't like tenants. And I'm always very open about that. I've been called more names than you can possibly imagine once I open my mouth in Stoke-on-Trent. And I have to say, I have brilliant managing agents that I work with at the moment, and I don't think that 10% of my amount, which is what I pay, is at all wasted, I have to say. They're very, very good. But I do think around the country, people have to think more about what they actually want from their letting agent and how their letting agent works. It's not just about choosing the one who's the cheapest or the one who's the nearest. It's the one that you get on with best and has the same ethos as you, which I think is really important. But talking about your blog, you've really enjoyed setting that up. And that was another reason I wanted to talk to you today, because a lot of people often say, oh, I, I feel I'm too old to get into property. I've missed the boat. I'm I don't think there is ever a time that's too old is that you you've just got to have enthusiasm and time to do it and a get up and go and you've been able to fit this whole property thing around a variety of things that are ongoing as well because I know you've already been doing another degree and it's not as if you're just sitting at home doing property all day it's part of your life isn't it yeah, so I left the corporate world. I decided to leave when I turned 50. I just had enough of it. And I decided that I wanted to do something I'd always wanted to do, which was to do a French degree, which I've done. I got a first, very happy, really enjoyed it. And I'm starting an MA next week in uh, French literature. And I went into property to give me an income. And to begin with, it didn't take a lot of time. I think that I perhaps didn't fully appreciate all the landlord responsibilities. With the first house I bought, if I bought it again now, I would do more of a refurbishment at the beginning rather than just doing it as I was going along. So I've learned, learned an awful lot. And then earlier this year, I decided that with the house I was buying, that I would try and find a tenant myself because I'd got thoroughly fed up with the local letting agents in Maidstone who were incompetent. They did something that was absolutely unforgivable. And uh, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to say what it is. No, absolutely not. But the it, it was a breach. It, it, it was a breach of the things that they should do. 
And I'd paid them £2,100 to find me a tenant for a rent of 1300 And they didn't do one of the most basic things that a letting agent should do. Tenants are brilliant, so no no problem with the tenants. So I decided to, to try and do it myself because our demand is really high at the moment for tenants. And I thought to myself, it can't be that difficult finding tenants. So I did it on open rent and managed to let the property really, really easy. It was actually far easier doing it myself than dealing with incompetent letting agents. And so I moved from being just a self-managing landlord to a landlord who finds tenants as well. And I'd been through this big learning curve over the last three years and wanted to help other people to share what I'd learned, because it is actually really easy to find tenants yourself if you have a little bit of time and the inclination and you know how to do it. So I wrote a guide on Instagram, and then I decided to set up a blog called The Independent Landlord, and I share lots and lots of practical tips. One I've just published this week is how to find the best location that works for you for your next buy-to-let. I've done ones on how to make your property stand out on the portals when you're trying to find tenants. They've got sexier titles on the website. (laughs) I was going to say, but that's rather fun. And one of the things about property is that if you want to understand things, you have to find someone who is speaking your language, which is why there are so many diverse people out there talking about property. But when you found someone, it's great to then read everything or listen to everything they have and then implement what you're, they're talking about. And that was another thing that you have brought out so uh, to me is that you had to learn all sorts of new skills, didn't you? Because you'd never had a blog before. You'd never done social media before. And everyone always says, oh, I'm too old to learn. But you've just leapt into the whole thing with enormous amounts of enthusiasm and gone, right, OK, build a website. How do I do that? <laughs> you know, How do I use a camera properly? Well, I think the gateway for me, the gateway drug was Canva, which I started because I could see in Instagram that people would have all these wonderful things uh, on Instagram. I thought, how on earth do they do that? I can't figure out how to do it. So I messaged some people and said, why is it that your post looks so good? And they said it was Canva. And so then I spent ages learning Canva. I thought, oh, I like this. And then I thought I need to up my game on my photos. So I bought a proper camera and started learning about that and learned Lightroom. I'm still not that brilliant, but, you know, I know how to resize and to make it different shades and things. And then I decided to start doing reels. So I started using, because uh, I get as a student, a cheap version of Adobe Creative Cloud. So I started using their editing, video editing software. And it took me a little while to figure out, but now I can do that. And so I was producing reels and pretty covers for them with Canva. And I'd set up a website for my property business. It wasn't very good. It was Wix. It was very clunky. And I was following somebody on Instagram who writes about how to set up a blog. And I went onto her blog and saw how to do it. So I researched, I spent um, about a month watching YouTube videos and reading things on how to set up a WordPress blog, because that's the bee's knees, WordPress, wordpress.org and how to get a theme and set it all up. And so I've been learning all the search engine optimization, how to set it out, do the pictures, what size they are. 
email campaigns, setting up a mailing list, and I'm about to do an ebook of a guide for new new landlords. And it's just kind of snowballed. I, there was no great plan. I didn't say to myself uh, when I finished my exams in May, oh, I'm going to do a, a blog and I, this, that and the other. It just kind of happened. One thing led to another. And I like learning new things and you're definitely not too old. I mean, I'm 54 and I, I'm pretty tech savvy, I think. It's like learning music and instruments. Once you know one thing, another thing's quite easy and languages for that matter. But you see, that is why people succeed in property is that, you know, it's a very, very wide church. And so you just have to keep going, OK, what am I going to learn now? So many people start off on a buy to let. I did. And then they go, oh, now I'm going to build something. Well, it's only when you've built something and you've, you know, from the ground up, would you think, oh, that was a little bit bigger than I anticipated. <laughs> um, you know, I needed so many more skills. But as long as you don't think I don't know that stuff, I can't do it. Actually, you can do so much more than you imagine, can't you? And you've had such fun doing it. But have you, when you were, you, you talked just very briefly, just dropped in there, that if you started again, you'd do bigger renovations. Was your first one just a quick lick of paint or have your renovations got steadily bigger as you've worked through your, your properties? Yeah. So the first one, the flat I had, I had effectively fixed everything that was broken while I was living there. So that didn't need anything when I let it. I had a new bathroom and things like that, new boiler. When I bought the my first house, it had been let and it had been painted before I bought it. And it was good enough. And I bought it at the start of my degree course. I didn't have a lot of time. And I went round and checked it and thought, yeah, that's good enough. And I let it. And I think with hindsight, I would have spent a little bit more time decorating the parts that weren't decorated and sorting out the cellar. The ceiling was just starting to come away and replace the carpet and things. But good enough is a phrase that a lot of people use when they buy a house, but they don't realise that good enough means you have to go back and revisit it at some point down the line. Yeah. You know, and even if you do a huge refurbishment, you know, mine always go back to brick and I start again. You know, when you've owned them for 15 years, they're tired. And after seven years, they get repainted. There's a whole rule book on how often you should paint places. But you know, this is the thing. You can't just buy a property and then almost expect it to last as long as you do without touching it again. Have you implemented in your system? I mean, do you have any software that you've bought to keep a record of when you're going to be doing the next lot of renovations or anything? Well, you know, I've only got three properties, so I keep it in my head. I do have a list of, of when the gas safety certificates are due and the, the EPCs and the, the EICRs, um, but I, I'm not that big. I'm at that size size that I can still do it in my head. In my latest property, I did redecorate everything and I replaced a bathroom and refreshed the kitchen, refreshed the second bathroom. So, and I agree with you that it is actually better to do that, but it was my inexperience three years ago. I didn't know what I didn't know. And it looked... That's the thing, isn't it? The unknown unknowns. Yeah. <laughs> And, and and that's partly why I set up the Independent Landlord blog is to try and help people to let them know the sorts of things they should be thinking about. I guess I'm writing it for the me I was three years ago or for other people that are setting up because there's an awful lot of courses that you can go on about how to find your next deal and how to get a below market value deal or to do deposit churning and all this sort of thing. But the, I was un, wasn't able to find much content on the practicalities of, okay, Okay, 
you've got a buy to let, this is what you need to do. And it's quite hard. The NRLA website has a lot of good resources, but that's quite clunky. And even then it doesn't go into how to do a refurb and give examples and lots of photos and things like that. So people can see the types of things that are involved. And that's what I'm trying to do. So that's what you set up. Because even in such a phrase as a Victorian house, so for instance, my biggest Victorian house in Stoke-on-Trent is 861 square feet. Now, something in Albany Street in Maidstone, that's nearly 1,200 square feet. So although they look identical from the outside, actually, they are very different because... I'm in the industrial north and our Victorian houses just sort of got smaller and smaller as they went up north and they look the same. And that's what people also forget, that if you are looking at a renovation in one part of the country, you may not be able to do that in your almost, you think it's identical house built at the same time in another part of the country because the the square footage and the width will be different. And you're, you're so right about the width. And that is the key thing I do when I view a house, because I never trust the floor plans and most of the time they don't have the widths. One of the key things I look out for is the width of the house, because there are a lot of houses in Maidstone that are 3.3 metres wide. I mean, and so by the time you got a door in, it's a, it's a tiny, tiny house. Whereas the, the house that I bought recently was almost four and a half metres wide. And so it has a hallway. I do have ones that are smaller, well, one that is smaller without a hallway, but even then that is almost four metres wide. And that's such an easy thing to look out for because Victorian houses, they do all look the same, but they're not. Sometimes that you'll have the two reception rooms and often the kitchen is in the second reception room and then you'll have a bathroom at the back and you might have bedrooms upstairs. I don't buy those because I like the kitchen to be out the back and for there to be two proper reception rooms because they're better for families. But that does come down to budget and where you are pitching who the type of tenant you want. Yeah. So my tenants really couldn't care less about any of that. Yeah. And I have a lot of houses where the kitchen is in the second reception room. Yeah. That works absolutely brilliantly for me. And that's fine. Again, it's down to what is your market and where do you, who do you want to serve as a tenant, which I think is not always the driving force when people start to get into property investing. It, it some and I think that that your viewpoint is equally valid to those who go oh it's only money that counts you know what what's your yield what's your return on investment what's your all these other things and you're going well actually if the fact is a wider Victorian house well any kind of wider house means you can move the staircase around so if you're going for a massive renovation you can do so much to it whereas the smaller ones you can't but again not everyone has the ability to and does that matter I think buy the kind of houses that suit you. I think that um, when I'm investing a certain amount of money in this area, I want to buy a house that is as good as I can get for that amount of money that will be a good place to live for families or for couples and singletons, uh, but a good place and spacious. And that will give me a good rent. And when I'm looking to buy houses, there's almost no difference or often no difference at all in the price between the configuration where they had the kitchen in the second reception room and out the back. And although upstairs bathrooms are popular, there is very, very little difference in price when you're buying them. But when you rent them, they are actually way more popular if they have that second reception room and the kitchen out the back. And so... Because there are so many Victorian houses in Maidstone, 
I just wait and pick and choose because if I'm going to spend X amount of pounds on a house, I'd rather get one where the configuration is right. And at the moment with the prices, there isn't enough margin in it to do an extension and to get the return. And uh, I know, you know, it's a question of trying to find below market deals, but it's difficult in my area at the moment. And I'm just happy doing them locally. I don't want to be having to drive miles to, to other places. But you see, I think that's brilliant because this is something that I'm always talking about is that there is no one way of doing property. You're very happy with your portfolio. It works for you. And I think that's fabulous. And I loved, we were talking ages ago about whether or not you paid down and all that sort of thing, which is not a conversation for today because we could wrap it on forever otherwise. But it is about the fact that if you are coming into property or you're relatively new to property, you've got to make some decisions really as to what you want to buy and how you want to buy it. And I love the phrase you said there was, which was, you know, I wait. It doesn't have to be done today. You know, there's no rule. No one's going to say you've got to buy by the end of the month. You find the thing that you're going to want to buy because actually property isn't that easy to sell. It's always much easier to buy. Not at you know, the moment it's relatively simple to sell something, but there are huge periods when you can't give the stuff away, frankly, if the market's wrong. So it is about knowing what you want and then going for it and then being happy with what you've done. And you obviously love what you've done so far. And presumably you are going to go on gently adding because you buy one a year type thing, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Because it does take, maybe it's just me because I put so much emotional energy into it, but it does take up a lot of emotional energy doing a refurbishment because I want it to be right. And it so far it has been successful. I've got wonderful tenants and very happy with how it's gone. And uh, there aren't that many properties that fit my incredibly restrictive criteria. I know that, that you know, many people think that they're too restricted. Um, people tell me it all the time. I don't care. I do what's right for me. I'm I'm trying to buy the house, our first house that we lived in. And in fact, my first Victorian house that I bought uh, by Tillet looks almost exactly the same as our first house because it was such a brilliant place to live in. And there are so many thousands of houses that you can buy as a landlord. And I just particularly like these and they're very marketable. People like living in them. I do paint them neutrally and all that kind of things. I'm not making the classic mistake of, of doing it all in my own image, but I just know that these are good family houses and having that second room reception room makes a difference. It means you can charge more rent and, <laughs> and people are more likely to stay there and they love having that extra space. But that, that's absolutely perfect. And I love the fact that you can get so passionate and you when you you know say, this is what I want to own and buy and rent out. It's a seamless stream of what it is that you're buying and why you want to buy it. And I think that's what all property investors should be able to say about the properties that they want to buy and rent out. <laughs> so thank you very much. It's been such a pleasure. Hopefully I'll have you again on in the future when you've done some more. For now, quickly tell us, where can people find your blog? Where can they find it? Okay, so the website is called theindependentlandlord.com. Good, because it'll be in the show notes, but a lot of people scribble notes down as they listen to this, you see. And you have very cheery Instagram reels and on your called what's it, My Victorian Houses? My Victorian Houses, yes. There's there's lots of mum dancing. If you want to see what someone in their mid-50s looks like, lip syncing and dancing around, but actually having fun. I, I do laugh a lot when I do them and some of them are really quite ridiculous. That is one of the things that I love about the property world is that 
most of us just absolutely adore doing it and have great fun. You know, there's an awful lot of fun and laughter and usually alcohol included as well when we get together. So so that's great fun. Well, thank you very much, very much indeed. It's been great talking to you this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Property Solopreneur podcast with Rachel Troughton. If you want to create a professional and profitable property business, download my property business checklist now at racheltroughton.com slash checklist.